Welcome back to the increasingly irregular um, Tasty Morsels of Critical Care podcast. Um, apologies, I've been away for a few weeks, more like a few months to be honest. Um, this week we're going to talk a little bit about parenteral nutrition. So sometimes the Tasty Morsels uh, are exam-sized snippets of, of my knowledge on any given topic. More frequently, they are literally all I know on the subject. So today's topic of parenteral nutrition is probably a good example of this. There is no doubt a lot more that I should know about what goes into those plastic shrouded bags at the end of the bed, but I'm afraid I do not. Firstly, indications. So from our point of view, the overall message should be that we use parenteral nutrition when we fail to establish enteral nutrition. The definition of when we have failed to establish enteral nutrition is, however, a little less well-defined. But it comes in somewhere around the five to seven day mark of not getting really sufficient calories into the patient. In real-life clinical practice, we often start much earlier, particularly in surgical cases where the surgeons feel that the gut, or perhaps more accurately, the anastomosis, might be able to handle a lot going down the esophagus and through the gut. In terms of complications, the main commonly touted one for parental nutrition has been infection, with a long-standing belief that parental nutrition increases the risk of sepsis, and this is probably not true. However, the need for central access on an ongoing basis does certainly increase the risk of Lyme-related infections, but it does seem a touch unfair to blame the parental nutrition for that. The boogeyman of refeeding syndrome rears its head in particular in relation to parental nutrition as the insulin that has lain dormant for so long in the starved patient finally comes out to play and causes havoc as the body moves from catabolism to anabolism. Again, this may not be due to the parental nutrition specifically and maybe more reflects the fact that in parental nutrition the calories are actually delivered as opposed to in enteral nutrition when they're commonly aspirated up the NG tube every four to six hours. Um, other complications, there is a, a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis or a hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis that is described in association with PN and may be caused by the amino acid solutions that it contains. So this is one for me anyway to add to my list of NAGMA causes. Um, another one, hypercapnia, causing a respiratory acidosis and hyperventilation, sometimes described as overfeeding in parental nutrition, and I think I probably have seen this once, but more commonly this tends to crop up in the data interpretation section of any fellowship exam when you're given a clinical context in an ABG and you're asked to explain things. If too many calories, so for example, let's say more than 4 mg per kg per minute of glucose, and just like a septic patient, if more too many calories are delivered, then the body will end up converting these to lipids, and this lipid creation is a CO2 generating process and may contribute to difficulty weaning or tachypnea driven by a high CO2 in someone who's um, previously underfed and is now being fed by parental nutrition. Liver function tests are frequently monitored and they're frequently abnormal and they are frequently ignored. That being said, there are a variety of potential issues with parental nutrition and LFTs, in particular hepatic steatosis, intrahepatic cholestasis and biliary sludge are all an issue. Unfortunately, most of these are already common in the critical ill and it would be hard to tease out which is which in any given case. In terms of what actually goes into the bag, um, while you can get pre-made bags, of course, in reality the composition is often determined by the super clever dietitians and certainly that's been the case in the units that I've worked in. Calories can come from any of the components, for example carbs or lipids, but the energy split is typically 70-30 carb to lipid, with the carbs being generally 50% dextrose. Lipids are a more concentrated way of providing energy and can avoid some of the hyperglycemia, though there is apparently concern for an immunosuppression effect with them. As I'm sure you already know, lipids are typically provided from intralipid. That's the magic white stuff we use when we give too much local anaesthetic and the patient gets a bit CZ and a bit VT. Um, the required nitrogen comes from L-amino acid solutions, uh, and it will also include the PN solution, some tasty vitamins, though in particular thiamine, folate and vitamin K are particularly prone to depletion. 
There are a, a significant number of important nutrition trials that occurred early in my career, probably before I was really paying any attention. And Life in the Fast Lane has a very good summary of all these, um, which is linked to in the show notes. But my TLDR for this is that there is really insufficient evidence to say that parenteral nutrition is better than enteral nutrition in general. And so for now, we go enterally with the feeding when we can and parenterally when we can't. Reading for this is O's Manual, Chapter 96, and the Life in the Fast Lane articles, particularly the literature summaries on some of the major trials, are well worth a look. <laughs> 